Um, a great work is going on in our church and in our nation today. Um, a great change is taking place. I think lots of people are worried. Um, Mary, um, I ask your prayers, your blessings on our church. Um, there are pieces of legislation that are, I think, distressing to lots of us, the, particularly those in support of abortion. Um, there's a Holocaust going on in our country. Um, it's present to us. It's an awful thing. Um, help us to do something about it, please. Um, let the work that we're doing together strengthen our efforts um, to give our wills to you, Christ. Um, whatever you ask, strengthen us in our efforts to make your kingdom real here in ourselves and all that we do, um, particularly where it's not going to be liked. Give us the courage and humility um, to be with you in everything we do. Um, it is good to be together again. Let your blessing be upon the work that we do tonight. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, I want to try to, um, to give as quick an overview of some of the things we've done with Lewis just in order to get to um, our work tonight. Um, did you all get my email? I, I asked all of you if you could have a, um, a copy of your um, Boethius Consolation. If, if you don't, um, take a second and go get it. it, it you don't have to have it, but it, it might help to be able to read along because I want to go to it later. Just in review, okay, very, very quickly, the last couple of weeks we, or before we started abolition, we were talking about Lewis's um, piece on the humanitarian theory of justice and discussing the differences between um, the old traditional approach to injustices, wrongs, with desert, what's deserving, rewards, punishments. And Lewis said against that the modern notion that that lots of people, particularly coming from the soft sciences, thought that that old way of doing things was barbaric and inhumane. And Lewis is making the argument that that's not so. As a matter of fact, in some ways, the modern approach is more inhumane. Um, it, on the surface, it looks kinder and more merciful, but it's it's got concealed in it buried problems, and he was trying to address those. One of the questions that I left you with last week was whether each of those two approaches was open to the other equally. And um, then we went on to abolition. I just want to go back to that to, to be clear on the differences. My, my question was, was the old desert, justice and mercy, as open to, equally open to cure? Um, was the cure approach equally open to um, deserts? to justices and punishments. Anybody want to come in on that? I've, I've, if, you, if you got my notes, you already know the, the answer that I put here, but I'm interested to hear if anybody had responses or, or disagreements or any thoughts on it. Is each one of the approaches, dessert, op open to the other? So dessert to cure, cure to desserts. Is that clear? Is anybody anybody have any thoughts? Um, 
I think the obvious answer to things. I think the obvious answer to it is um, no. That the old traditional approach makes an opening for cure in a way that the cure approach does not for desserts. And let me try to make that clear if I can. Um, the old traditional approach, justice desserts, justice and mercy, always made a place for cures for people entering in to help people with their wrongs, suffering through them in some way. We've had lots of examples of that sort of thing. The most obvious and closest to mine is Boethius. Lady philosophy comes to him. He's going to be executed, so he, he's in that desserts category. He's, he's, he's accused of doing an injustice, and he's going to suffer the punishment for it. He's going to die. He believes he's been wrongly accused, so nobody makes the case against justice and mercy better than Boethius because he's going to be killed wrongfully, unjustly. So if there were any man who had a, um, a complaint against the old theory, justice and mercy, it's Boethius. Lady Philosophy comes and offers him a cure. And those are exactly her words. She's going to give him a medicine to help him out of this because she says your problem, you remember, this is so important, your problem is you've got amnesia, you've forgotten things, and then step by step she takes him through this process to help him recover an understanding that he once had um, about the nature of things, God and the way God's justice and mercies work out in reality. So she, her approach to this justice mercy problem involved a cure. And you know that as she goes along, she strengthens, she gets tougher and tougher and tougher. She strengthens her medicine. The cure approach cannot, in, in a basic sense, um, make a place for the dessert approach on the basis of its premises, its, its assumptions. Because the basis of the cure approach is that we have a sickness, some disease. You don't punish somebody because somebody's got a disease. You don't punish somebody because they've got a cold or the flu or cancer. You treat it. So the analogy for the cure um, therapy, the analogy for that approach is the body. Body has a disease, you apply certain medicines, and you cure the person. But Lewis spoke to those problems that if, um, if that's the approach, then you're in the hands of people who think they can cure spiritual evils, sins, disorders, when they can't. The old approach involved God, that God is the one who can heal us. And if that becomes your approach, cure and therapy, um, then in some ways you're, you're um, not allowing for other sources of help in dealing with crimes, injustices, or wrongs. So there's not a, a, re a real reciprocity between the two. I, I, my own belief is that I'm sure there are some people who are in the modern world who believe that they still look back to justices and mercies, to desserts. They can reward patients when they do well. You know, but it's a very different category of thinking. So C.S. Lewis is trying to address some of the problems that entered the modern world with the sciences, when the way in which we approach dealing with wrongs and disorders in the human soul is based on scientific assumptions.
So that was basically the issue we were dealing with then. Um, Don has spoken to it a number of times when he said, you know, um, in the sciences, if you deny free will, you're going to make any approach to treatment harder because nobody will ever get cured of a disease if they don't give their wills to it. You know, so there's a whole other element of the mystery of the human will that that comes into play in all these questions. So that was the that was our focus um, for the last few weeks, and then we took up the uh, abolition of man and um, and in the first chapter last week, Lewis was uh, making the argument that um, if I can just simply describe this for a minute, just for you. Um, he was responding to what has become a typical approach in education today. And that approach is, he didn't, he used this word, he, he, he didn't, he didn't beat us over the head with it, but he referred to it, he alluded to it. It's what today we would, we would know as the subjectivist theory of knowledge that the only knowledge we have is really a projection of our own feelings or ideas. Um, so what Lewis is dealing with, if I can just put this simply for a minute, is the conflict between a subjectivist approach to reality and an objectivist. He's criticizing these two educators because the approach they're taking is subjectivist. The point that they're making is that there are, um, that all predicates, all judgments of value are nothing more than projections of our own feelings or thoughts. And you remember he gave the example of the of Coleridge's response to the waterfall um, on page 18, just to go back. When the man said that, um, that this is sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. This is Gaius and Cassius, or Titus. Actually, he was not making a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. What he was saying was, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime, or shortly, I have sublime feelings. Lewis points out the confusion of that because if we were in the presence of something that was sublime, our natural feeling would be awe or humility or, you know, if we were, for, and I gave the example last week, if we were in the presence of God, I don't think we would be godly. We would be humbled. We would be um, the the appropriate feelings. I think in the presence of God would be wonder, dread, humility, gratitude. I mean, whatever they would be. So Lewis is tackling a very modern problem, and um, he, he um, in the very towards the middle of the. Um, the first chapter, he said that there were three things that the that the two writers had really not come to terms with. One is that dealing with literary pieces or literature generally is hard. It's hard to do literary criticism because so often it evokes subjective feelings on us, but it still leaves us with the with the question: What is the meaning of the work that we're reading? You know, if we were reading Auden's poem or Dostoevsky or Faulkner. What's there, objectively, apart from us? It can arouse different feelings in different people, but is there a meaning in that work itself, objectively? 
The second, he said, is that he thinks that the two men have misunderstood the, the, um, the real crisis we're facing today. Um, he, he, he put it in terms of they're not seeing the need of education. And his comment was that we don't need to develop stronger minds, that the pressing need of education today is to help develop better hearts because it's in our hearts that we're most fully human. And he uses the model of Plato's soul, remember reason and the appetites, those desires that are directed towards the good or the beautiful or the true, and those appetites that are directed towards physical things, the lower things. And Plato, you remember, said that it's, it's the, the, the problem that we face is learning how to order the soul so that reason can control the lower appetites by means of that middle element, the spiritedness. Um, and, he, and he gave the image of the soul that we've looked at a number of times. On page 28, he puts the, the problem succinctly when he's quoting Shelley, and he says in the middle of 28, to disagree with this is pretty if those words simply describe the lady's feelings would be absurd. If she had said, I feel sick, Coleridge would hardly have replied, no, I feel quite well. When Shelley, having compared the human sensibility to an Aeolian lyre, goes on to add that it differs from a lyre in having a power of internal adjustment, whereby it can accommodate its cores to the motions of that which strikes them, he is assuming the same belief. Can you be righteous, asks Traherne, unless you be just in rendering to things their due esteem? The problem for all of us is learning to adjust our emotions to what's outside of us, to learn to have ordinate feelings. So we're in the, when we're in the presence of, in presence of something small, a flower, a rock, a stone, we would feel differently if we were in the presence of Christ, um, a waterfall, a beautiful church. Um, the, the problem that we all have is learning, like a lyre, you know, that tuned instrument, learning to attune ourselves with an objective reality outside of us. Um, um, the, 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 the mystics, the, the, the masters of the spiritual life, talk, talk about it in terms of an approach to God learning more and more to come into tune with God as we get closer to him. The closer we get to him, the closer we get to his light, the harder it is, um, the more changes we have to make on ourselves. I thought um, Bishop Barron put it well once when he said, um, you know, it, um, if you approach a window with marks on it and there's no sun outside, you don't see those marks very clearly. But if you approach a window and there are marks on it, the closer you get to the light, the more those marks show. So the closer we get to God, the more, the more we enter into his light, the more we become aware of our own sins and the need to do something about them. So that's basically his argument that finally we have to, we have to learn to... Um, to adjust ourselves to make our emotions ordinate. Um, we've been talking about this forever, actually, if we go back to the beginning. Um, remember, we've been saying if we keep Plato's model of the soul 
Remember, I drew a circle with reason and themos, the, the center part and the appetites. How can we give somebody his due? Because justice was, one, was the greatest virtue of the ancient world. How can we give somebody his due if we don't learn to order our own souls? If there's something wrong with our own souls, if, if we're out of tune in some way, we won't be able to give another person his due. That's got to be even more true for love. If we're called to love, how can we love another as we're called to do if we don't learn to order our loves, you know, to give them as we should. So that was basically the argument of um, the first chapter. And he concludes, if I can just quote his words, he says on 55, without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. I had sooner play cards against a man who was quite skeptical about ethics, but bred to believe that a gentleman does not cheat than against an irreproachable moral philosopher who'd been brought up among sharpers. In battle, it's not syllogisms that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of the bombardment. The crudest sentiment, sentimentalism, about a flag or a country or a regiment will be of more use. We were told it long ago by Plato. As the king governs his executive, so reason in man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element, the thumos, the anger, the, the love of higher things. The head rules the belly through the chest, through the seat. As Alanis tells, this is on page 36, the seat of magnanimity, of emotions organized by trained habits into stable sentiments. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment, these are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it is by the middle element that man is man. For by his intellect, he's mere spirit, by his appetite, mere animal. The operations of the green book in its kind is to produce what may be called men without chests. Unerotic, unfeeling, mechanical men. It is an outrage that they should be commonly spoken of as intellectuals. This gives them a chance to say that he who attacks them attacks intelligence. It's not so. They are not distinguished from other men by any unusual skill in finding truth nor any vig virginal ardor to pursue, her, to pursue her. Indeed, it would be strange if they were. A persevering devotion to truth, a nice sense of intellectual honor, cannot long be maintained without the aid of a sentiment which Gaius and Titus could debunk as easily as any other, because their habit is to dismiss those things like they're not rational. It's not excess of thought, but defect of fertile and generous emotion that marks them out. This is so in keeping with, call, with Christ's call. We're called to love. We can't love very well if we don't know the truth. Our intellect is absolutely engaged in that. Um, but we have to learn to form our emotions. We can't do that without the help of the intellect because it's the intellect that helps us distinguish good from bad. Their heads are no bigger than ordinary. It's the atrophy of the chest beneath that makes them seem so. And all the time, such as the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive, dynamism, self-sacrifice, creativity. 
In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the Geldings be fruitful. So to go back to his epigraph, remember the epigraph is, so he um, sent the word to slay and slew the little children. So the argument that um, Lewis is making is that um, we're handing our kids over to people involved in education who are, whether they know it or not, who are, who are pushing a subjectivist theory of knowledge, that the only things that are real are those things inside of us, that what's outside of us are projections of our own feelings, nothing more. Um, and on the basis of that, they're taking away not only the world outside of us, but any help that we could have in, try, in learning to adjust our emotions, our, our minds, to what's outside of us. So that's, that's the, uh-oh, hold on. That's the crux of his first chapter. Um, any, any thoughts or questions or um, anything to offer in that or reflections? It's, um, it's a setup for the chapter we're going to look at in a minute, but I just want to make sure before we go on. Any, uh, yeah? Um, kind of a, maybe a statement and a, possibly a clarification for my part. Yeah. When you talk about subjectivism, I was thinking, if you read the Talmud, there's a saying in there that says, we don't see people as they are, we see people as we are, right? So if someone is kind of a liar, conniving kind of person, you're going to treat everybody else like liars and connivers, because right. what they would do to you, what you think they may do to you, you're going to do to them, right, 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 right. So that, to me, rings a little bit about what you're saying is subjective, yeah. and how they Am I correct in that, or am I off base? No, no. I think I think it's a really good illustration, Mark. It's 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 so appropriate. Absolutely. Go ahead. I mean, you're. No, just making sure I was trying to understand it. No, no. Is it was that it? I thought you had something else too. No. No, no. That was pretty much it. I was just trying to clarify that my thought in my head was uh, was the same thing as what you're talking. No, I I think your example is right on. It could. It reminds me of Christ when he says give. Get rid of. I mean, your words are. You know, it's a it's a concrete example of what Christ says when he says, "Get rid of the beam in your eye <laughs> um, before you try to take." You, I mean, because I thought your description. If if there's something wrong in what's going on with us, it's hard not to project that onto other people. And the whole force of his thing is, in education, we've got to help people get beyond that to learn to see. I mean, in Christian terms, there's a goodness to the world, there's a beauty to the world, there's a truth to things. It's, it's, a, it's important for us to struggle to learn to see those so that we can love, you know, the way we've been called to do. I, I thought your example's perfect. Um, it's right on. Somebody, That's all. Is somebody trying to get in? Yeah, somebody, I hear a bell. No, I, I'm not seeing any. Anybody else? By the way, I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry for the... I don't know what's going on. Tracy, it's good to see you. I always feel like when you're here, we're in contact with somebody a hundred, no, in Europe. You know what I mean? You're not around. And Debbie, it's good to see you back. And Kathy, I'd, I'd forever seeing you on that couch in that same position. And <laughs> it's just, it's, it's always good to see you in your settings because it, it sort of 
welcomes us into your home. Thomas, it's good, are you, it's good to see you. Um, God, I hope I miss seeing you at the wreck. Um, anybody, anybody, anybody else? Um, Fred and Francis, I don't see your picture, but your name's here. Are you guys with us tonight? Right here. Oh, good, good, good. Okay, we're here. Okay, um, you guys want to offer any thoughts on this before we go to the second chapter? Okay, let oh, me. What? I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Fred. You go ahead. Take our move on. Should we move on? Let's move so, on. Okay. Okay. So the epigraph of the first chapter was he sent the word and killed the children. You know that it's to me it's Lewis is I mean, what do you say about men that bright? You know, to take a little quote like that. I, you know, I've talked about this before. We so take words for granted. I gave the example, tried to give the example once of asking everybody to imagine if you've been raised in a closet. Or, or like, um, what's your name, the woman who was blind and deaf? Helen Keller. Helen Keller, you know, who was imprisoned in a world. She couldn't use language, and she used to fly into a rage, just a rage. She was so caught up from the world. And then that, that, that day came when the woman who was watching her poured cold water on her hand and um, printed out, I think, cold and it was a transforming moment for Keller because this is so important, it goes right to what Lewis is dealing with right here. It wasn't just the sensual experience of cold water. It was a concept. Because we can all experience water just the way an animal, a dog is going to feel cold or heat. But one of the ways in which we're distinguished from the rest of the species is that we can conceptualize, we can have a concept, an idea. What happened in that moment is she conceived the notion of coldness, and it was related to her sensory experience. Once she conceived that, had an idea, the world broke open, because she could move beyond sensual experiences to universals, that is, to the objective world that C.S. Lewis is talking about. I hope that's clear. That's absolutely fundamental to whatever we're talking about. If we're closed up in our subjective worlds and we have no way of relating to the world, we're lost. We're in prison. Lewis is taking this as seriously as he does because he's saying the modern th subjective approach to things is really imprisoning us. It's cutting, off, cutting us off from an objective reality outside. So when he, when he um, there's two things I want to start with just to move from the first chapter to the second. The, the epigram, epigraph to chapter 2 is this. The Way is the title of chapter 2. It is upon the trunk that a gentleman works. And so I'm going to open with two questions here. The opening lines of chapter 2 say, read... The practical result of education in the spirit of the Green Book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. 
Now, before we go into the work, I know I'm jumping ahead. I'm assuming you guys have read it and understand it clearly. I think this is going to be a tough. I think this is a tough read because it. I mean, it's going to be. I, I'm going to have some fun here because I. We're going to have to look at logic and how people think. You know, early on in this essay, it's it's going to be fun. I think. It may chase some of some of you off, but my first two questions are are these. Um, that's a pretty alarming statement. The practical result of education in the spirit of the Green Book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. So I want to know why, first of all, why he can make a claim like that. That's the opening statement of a chapter. But before we get there, I'd just like to go to this, this, ep, this epigraph. It is upon the trunk that a gentleman works. That's from Confucius. Like the, like the one opening the chapter 1. No. So he sent the word to slay and slew the little children. What's the meaning of this epigraph, this rubric to chapter 2? Why does he begin the second chapter with this quote from Confucius? It is upon the trunk that a gentleman works. What did Confucius mean? Why is Lewis? And by the way, I hope everybody's aware here, Lewis is a Christian. He's doing everything he can, absolutely everything he can, to stay away from Christian platitudes, Christian preaching, evangelizing. He's having nothing to do with any of that. He's not making arguments for God. He's not trying to bring people into the church. He's not defending a faith. What he's doing is using reason to answer what he sees as a threat to our modern world. So he takes a little line from a carol to open the first chapter, and here he's taking a line from Confucius. Why does he do this? What's the meaning of, it is upon the trunk that a gentleman works? What's your thoughts, you guys? Tracy, you're dealing with a secular audience, and these people are coming to you because of some love of art. And here you've got Lewis, who's a Christian, who obviously loves art, by the way, if that isn't clear, the whole force of the first book is art. These people are reading literature and they're doing everything they can to debunk it. This is all romantic nonsense. And he's saying, you know, one of the hardest things in the world is to learn to read literature well. Um, Lewis is very, very, he's got art very much on his mind. Um, so it's upon the trunk that a gentleman works. That's from Confucius. What, what's that mean, Tracy? I have no idea. Why is trunk capitalized? Good question. Somebody. Good question. I love questions. I just, I wish we had more time so we could ask more questions. Every time we have to All answer. What think of is like the trunk of your body. <laughs> well, take, take it to mean any trunk. I think it means the tree or the trunk of the body. You can, you know, make it. But what's he saying? What's... That, that's the opening epigraph to an important chapter. In some sense, it speaks to the whole chapter. Well, to me, the, the truck represents, and the reason it's capitalized, especially if you've read any of Confucius's work, it speaks to the spirit. And without the spirit, you can never get the balance between intellect 
and the appetites. So for, for me, the, the key is, you know, in the, in the, in the sense of Confucius's word, the, the gentleman, without that focus on, on the spirit, you can never, you can never hope to achieve that, that balance that Confucius was trying to advise us to achieve. And if you look at, you know, why would that be a destruction of society? I think we, I think we see it now. If, if you are focused on, on just the intellect or on the appetites, you don't, you're not really open to discourse. I mean, we, we can see it in spades today. The, the art of intellectual discourse is all but disappeared. You have so many people who have formulated their opinion, and they're, I don't know if, I don't know if anybody's tr tried lately to have intellectual discourse, but I found it to be... On political matters, particularly. Virtually impossible to do, because <laughs> right. if you've got someone who, who lacks that spirit to, to expand their intellectual or spiritual or overall viewpoint, then it's, it's hopeless. And if, 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 if that's what we become, uh, I, I think the society that, that we're headed for is very much different than the one that we were founded on. Yeah, yeah. Sue, you had your hand up. What's, uh, yeah, what's I, the trunk? I want to second Fred on a couple of notes. I grew up in a university environment, and we remember that we could talk about ideas. I mean, not just political, but all across the board, you could talk about ideas, and they weren't personal. They were ideas. You talked about them as, as intellectual things. But uh, as to the trunk, when I read this, what I thought of is it is only through the trunk that you get branches and twigs and leaves, and everything yep. grows from the trunk. Yep. So if you don't work on that, if you get a deformed, errant poorly constructed trunk, then the tree can't be viable and a good society in, the, in this case. Yeah. So that's what I took from Yeah. Or, or if you live outside the trunk. I think right. the trunk is, yeah, I mean, I, you're right on. I do, right on, Sue. I think that the trunk is a metaphor for reality. You know, that that's the source of things. When you're thinking, and, and it's interesting that he puts it in terms of a gentleman, that, that there's like a manner that you have to learn to bring to your work. But what you're dealing with is the source of everything. If you start acting or, or responding to reality with some sense that there's something outside of that, then you're not working on the source of all things. Um, it's like you're denying reality. And so he's, the, the image is a metaphor, really, of what he's been talking about all along. That, that this subjectivist way of responding to the world denies a reality, and what it does in its place is create things in its place. And, I mean, I th well, let me stop there. I, th so the, I, think, I think, Tracy, that's the trunk. It's the source of things, the life things. I thought Sue's way of putting it was really good. It's where the branches, the leaf, the flowers, that's it. So um, it's a metaphor for the source of life, everything there. 
if you don't learn to see that there is some source of life in whatever way you work at things and act like you're outside of them, then you've lost contact. You have no way of guiding yourself, no, no way of learning what to do. He begins the, the second chapter with that line, um, the practical result of living according to the subjectivist way of approaching things is the destruction. Why, why can anybody, anybody want to offer a thought about that? That's a, that's a pretty alarm, seemingly alarmist sort of statement to make at the beginning of the second chapter. If you accept his understanding, if you go back to the first chapter and his description of what um, Gaius and Titus were doing with their use of that Coleridge example, you know, that all, all statements, all predicates of value are nothing more than projections of our feelings. If that's the way we all live, why would it lead to the destruction of our world, the world we live in? Anybody want to get on that before we look at the chapter? Take a jump. Tracy, you've got this big smile. On. What's going on? God, sorry. <laughs> what is that? I would think it's more... And I put it in more political terms. If you look at the socialism, the communism types of things, right? You have to destroy everything around you to get everybody to accept it. So if you have this subjective view, you're not teaching other subjective people because they agree with you. You have to basically force it upon the education system, force it upon the children and bankrupt them morally, um, intellectually, uh, to get them to... I guess, buy into whatever it is you're teaching. Um, I guess power and control is what it comes down to. And, and you can't do that. You know, they've done it slowly and surely as, you know, for a hundred years. Yeah, more than. There are lots of people, I mean, I, I think it's a misreading of Plato, but there are lots of people that would say that communism is not this subjective world, that the roots of it are Plato and the Republic. Um, I, there's a way you can read the Republic and come to that conclusion. I, I don't think it's a good reading of the Republic, but um, and both Plato and Aristotle object to socialism, Plato and the Republic and Aristotle and the politics. So the, all of those forms of government are rationally based. They're, you know, they're not people just arbitrarily. There are reasons for them, rational. But the, the really, I mean, if you've read in the tradition, you, you'll see that every one of them has been answered by a better reason, you know, sounder reasons in um, a better, like a constitutional form of government. Um, I think the simple answer to the question is if it goes back to the use of words, you know, that we if take away words and we have no way of communicating with each other, we're, we're imprisoned in ourselves. I mean, it, it just scares me to think about it, you know, take away language. Um, or, or put it even better, let's say take away language, and we still had sign language with which to communicate. Imagine our world reduced to what we could get in sign language. And I don't want to take anything away from sign language. I think it's extraordinary. But you don't have the articulateness of words, the fineness, music, language, you know, rhythms, third signifying things, what poets do to bring a world. There's such a fineness to the, the um, that we can be brought to through language to increase our understanding, to deepen it. Take that away. 
and we're imprisoned in our worlds. Um, I think he's saying that if we're imprisoned in our worlds and we have no way to communicate, we'll destroy each other. Because the assumption behind his argument is man is social, he's political, we were meant to be with other people. If a subjectivist way takes over, we undercut our efforts to, to go out to each other, to receive each other, to offer ourselves, to receive somebody else. I mean, it would just be horribly crippled. So in his mind, it's a mind I happen to agree with um, pretty deeply, in his mind, um, so much of what we value would be destroyed. So those are the opening lines to chapter 2. I want to I get to, if I can, he says that, um, that whether they know it or not, Gaius and Titus are putting forth a subjectivist theory of knowledge. I, I think he's being pretty fair. My, my sense is that I don't think those men are very capable to um, examine their own assumptions. They just put it forward because those were the assumptions that they inherited from a generation before. It's just like people growing up today. They inherit certain things from their education. They carry on as if they're truths. They don't question them. And then you know that the whole Socratic enterprise coming out of the cave is based on questioning what we know, raising questions. He's, he's trying to give them credit and says that he doesn't think they've really examined it. If they did, they wouldn't be able to answer how you the question, how you arrive at this knowledge, how you do this. And on page 43, and for the next couple of pages, he, he makes the point that they could, they could not give a defense of their own position except by referring to an objective theory of knowledge. So they would be drawing from the trunk, even though what they're doing is trying to cut the trunk down. I hope that's clear. The subjectivist is saying there is no objective, there's no worth to things, no inherent worth to things. The sublimity of a waterfall or of a, or of, you know, the nobility of a, of a man sacrificing of life in battle is no better than something else. For any appeal to judgments of value, they'd have to go back to an objective reality. And he says that most of them won't because they begin by denying it. And so he, he says that when they try to defend it, um, they look to other things and don't know and don't realize that they're actually drawn in something they're denying. So it's a contradiction in their position. On page 43, he wants to take death um, as a basic example to make his case for everything else. So he says... 43, let us continue to use the previous example. Remember, because at the end of chapter 1, he was describing the Roman father who was trying to teach his son that death was sweet, dolce, and um, decorous. There was a decorum, a, a, a solemnity, a value in dying a good death. That if one sacrificed himself for his country, it gave a greater worth to who he was as a human being. He gave his life for something better. And his um, criticism of Gaius and Titus is that they would debunk that. They'd say there's no value in doing that. So he says, let's go back and take death. Not, of course, because virtue is the only valor or martyrdom, the only virtue, page 44, but because this is the experimentum crucis, 
which shows different systems of thought in the clearest light. That is, the experimentum cruci is that example which will definity, definitively answer the question. So he's trying to find one example that will throw a light on all the others. And he, and he says, death is it, because all things finally have to be measured against that. Um, and he goes on. Let us suppose that an innovator in values regards dolce or decorum and greater love hath no man. That's Roman and Christian. Christ said, there's nothing greater than giving our lives for another. As mere irrational sentiments which are to be stripped off in order that we may get down to the realistic or basic ground of this value. Where will he find such a ground? Now the point is, he's saying that if these men are pressed to give a defense of their argument, they can't do it. And he takes two um, areas of thought. Facts and instincts. And he says neither one of them will answer. Um, if they try to explain everything on the basis of instincts, that we do this because of this instinct or that instinct, or that he says, how would we choose them if we had conflicting instincts? You know, on what basis would we choose one or the other? And facts, because the scientific world created a world um, which made it impossible to give any predicates of moral value. Things were just things. That's the world we've inherited for the last 300 years, 350 years. 44 at the bottom. At this point, the innovator may ask why, after all, selfishness should be more rational or intelligence than altruism. Question is welcome. If by reason we mean the process actually employed by Gaius and Titius when engaged in debunking, that is, in connecting by inference of propositions ultimately derived from sense data with further propositions, then the answer must be a refusal to sacrifice oneself is no more rational than a consent to do so. No less, ra no less. Neither choice is rational or irrational. Now here's where I want to go for a minute because I think this is just this was a masterstroke in this chapter. Neither choice is rational or irrational. From propositions about fact, anything that science can give us, from propositions about fact alone, no practical conclusion can ever be drawn. This will preserve society, cannot lead to do this, except by the mediation of society ought to be preserved. This will cost you your life, cannot lead directly to do not do this. It can lead to it only through a felt desire or an acknowledged duty of self-preservation. The innovator is trying to get a conclusion in the imperative mood out of premises in the indicative. And though he continue trying all attorney, he cannot succeed for the things impossible. We must therefore either extend the word reason to include what our ancestors called practical reason and confess that judgments as, such as, society ought to be preserved, though they can support themselves by no reason of the sort that Gaius and Titus demand, are not mere sentiments, they are rationality itself. And I'm assuming this isn't crystal clear, or maybe it is, because um, I think this is, um, but um, can anybody explain what he just said? 
The innovator is trying to get a conclusion in the imperative mood of premises in the indicative. He can try forever and cannot do it. Does somebody want to jump in? Explain that? Because what he's going to right now is a process of logic and thinking. Where we start with and how we arrive at our conclusions. Anybody want to... What's going on here with this? Are you guys there? I keep... What's going on? Um, anybody want to jump in? I'm just wondering if you're overestimating your audience here, Bob. I don't, I, you know, I, I, because I'm having to look a couple of things up. Okay, here. here. Okay. Let me, okay. Let me see if I can make this simple. I, I, I was blown away. I I mean, it was a life changing. you're on mute. Oh, am I? Sorry. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, um, I was blown away the first time I read this because, you know, I teach English and part of what you do is teaching composition and writing and logic and I was absolutely blown away by this. It, it, I can't tell you the effect it had on me. Let's take a simple syllogism. He's saying you cannot get to a conclusion than what ought to do something from a statement in um, the indicative mood. The indicative says this is so. This tree is green, right? You cannot get from you cannot get from a statement in the indicative mood to include to a conclusion in the um, imperative. You ought to do something. So let me take a really simple example. Because um, this is the you know you get this in textbooks and logic um, as a as a way of teaching a syllogism how how to move from a premise to a conclusion. And this is I think the sort of classic example. All men are mortal. If you draw a circle, all men are mortal. Socrates is the man, right? You put a circle inside the circle. He's a man because he's mortal. What's the conclusion? Socrates is mortal. All men are mortal. He's a man. Therefore, it follows, right? He's mortal. That's just a classic syllogism of moving from a premise to a conclusion through that middle element. If you say all men are mortal, and you say Socrates is a man, so you put that circle inside the large circle, then the only conclusion you can draw is um, he's mortal. If you came to the conclusion, say all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, can you come to the conclusion that Socrates is not mortal? No, it's a fallacy. It's an illogical conclusion, right? Yeah? Mark, I'm doing my best here. Help me out. Okay, <laughs> okay. okay. Okay, so... In order, to, in order to get to an imperative in the conclusion, what do you have to start with in the premise? A value. A fact. <laughs> A value. Men are mortal. A fact. No, no, somebody help. <laughs> to arrive at a conclusion in the imperative, one ought to do something, you have to start with a premise in the imperative. Right? If you start with... Wait, wait, hold on. Go back to my... I mean, I want to make this really simple. If you start with a, all men are mortal, that's in the... This is so, you know, and Socrates belongs here. You can... You cannot draw all men ought to from that... In, logically, from that premise. If you're going to start with a premise in the indicative, you're going to end up with a premise or a conclusion in the indicative. All men are mortal. Socrates is mortal. 
If you're going to arrive at an ought, you can't arrive at that with um, an indicative, a fact. The whole point he's making is you cannot begin with state with values of fact and arrive at an imperative. It's impossible. You can try forever and never get there, not logically. So he's saying, this is where we're going. This is crucial. All statements of value have to be accepted at face value as self-evident, or they'll be destroyed. Because if you look for a ground underneath them, you will not find them. To say that death a let's say a self-sacrifice of death is a good thing is a starting point because giving your life for somebody else is a good thing I mean you reason from those two things so he goes on here take a look to because he'll flesh it out some he says um, um, he goes on to argue that people who make statements of fact as if they can get from a scientific fact to a um, to a judgment of value is to make a leap you can't make. Um, so he says, 52, middle of page 52, the truth finally becomes apparent that neither in any operation with factual propositions nor any appeal to instinct can the innovator find the basis for a system of values. None of the principles he requires are to be found there, but they are to be found somewhere else, the trunk. Um, hold on, sorry for one second. Yeah, the trunk. Let me, sorry, let me read, continue. None of the principles he requires are to be found there, but they are all to be found somewhere else. And he gives examples. All within the four seas are his brothers. That's Confucius. Human nubial, uh, me alinum puto, says the Stoic. Do as you would be done by, says Jesus. Humanity is to be preserved, says Locke. All the practical principles, because remember he's talking about practical principles of things that are good for us to do. All the practical principles by the innovator's case for posterity or society or the species are there from time immemorial in the Tao. Another word for the Tao is the trunk. It's the way. It is the source of life. It is life itself. But they are nowhere else unless you accept them without question as being to the world of action what axioms are to the world of theory, you can have no practical principles, whatever. You can reach them. You cannot reach them as conclusions. They are premises. You may say, since they can give you no reason for themselves of a kind to silence Gaius and Titius, regard them as sentiments, but then you must give up contrasting real or rational values with sentimental value. All value will be sentimental, and you must confess on pain of abandoning everything you believe in that all sentiment is not merely subjective. You may, on the other hand, regard them as rational, nay, as rationality itself, as things so obviously reasonable that they neither demand nor admit proof. But then you must allow that reason can be practical, that an ought must not be dismissed because it cannot produce <coughs> some is as its credential. <coughs> if nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. I want to come back to this because this is crucial. 
If nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. Similarly, if nothing is obligatory for its own sake, nothing is obligatory at all. Now hold on to this. Page 55, since I can see no answer to these questions, he's drawn some several questions about the innovator. Um, I draw the following conclusions. This thing t um, which I have called for convenience the Tao and which others may call natural law, traditional morality, or the first principles of practical reason or the first platitudes is not one among a series of possible systems of value. It is the source of all value judgments. If it's rejected, all values rejected. What you've got in its place are ideologies, something that tries to reject the trunk, the town. Let me offer this one thought on logic because it's it's just a way of sum, summing up what he's saying. And I'll read that line again just to reinforce it. Um, if you look for some place to find support for what you're saying, outside the Tao, you won't find it. They are life itself. They are the trunk. That's the source of life. They are nowhere else unless you accept these without question and it, as being to the world of action what axioms are to the world of theory, you can have no practical principles, whatever. Now let me, let me try to make this clear if I can for a moment because I'm sure this is probably not easy for everybody. Aristotle says, Aristotle and Lewis is just repeating them, if you don't start with something self-evident, then you have no basis for arguing at all because your thought will just either go on infinitely to nothing or it will stop. Something self-evident has to be the basis of arguing. There has to be a first principle on which arguments derive. Or you have, you'll, I mean, you'll do what Fred was talking about. You'll just be, or Mark, you'll be talking past each other all your life. So let me give you two, two of the most obvious first principles. Nobody thinks about Aristotle did. The first principle of thought, the first principle of thought is the rule of non-contradiction. If you don't accept that as self-evident, you can't begin to think. For you to say this chair is here and not here, in that contradiction is to make thinking impossible. For any thinking to take place at all, there has to be a rule of non-contradiction. Otherwise, you're lost in thought. Everything will be confusing. The first principle of morality is do good unto others. Those are self-evident. If you're looking for something beneath them, you'll not find it. If you accept the rule of non-contradiction, you can begin to argue and talk with each other. You can catch somebody in a contradiction and say, that, no, that doesn't make sense. If you start with a rule, the self-evident rule, if you're looking for something further, you won't find it. If you start with a self-evident rule that um, do good to others, then you can say, um, if the first rule is do good to others, then it's good for you to do this, it's not good for you to do that. You can make an argument. But if you don't start there, you have nowhere to go. So what Lewis is saying is these, these people who have lost who approach the world with a subjectivist way of looking at things are actually creating a world in which it would be possible for us to get along. We won't be able to think and we won't be able to act. And his primary concern here is with the world of action.
um, that if we're looking for a guide for our actions, they're there in those self-evident principles. He just gave examples. You know, they're all examples of um, of the gentleman working on the trunk. It, it's the one who works on the source of reality, the trunk, who's doing his work there, who becomes the gentleman, who will be able to carry on with his work. So he gave the examples, all within the four C's are his brothers, do as you should be done by. He says um, later that if anybody says you're locked, you can't do anything, he says, no, that's not true, on page 56. Does this mean then that no progress in our perceptions of value ever take place? He says, no, that's not true. Um, development does take place, but from within. So long as what you're doing is inherently working from within it, then you're okay. By the way, John Henry Newman's great book, one of his one of the great contributions to the Catholic faith after Newman's conversion, he wrote a book called The Development, I think The Development of Doctrine, and it was his response to the Protestant world that he just left because he was making a defense for some of the, doc, the dogmas, the changes that took place in the church. And his argument was transubstantiation didn't become a dogma until later, so the Protestants saying that shows how wrong you are, it doesn't make sense, that every, every living creature develops so that there are times in history that changes take place, but they're always intrinsic to the good of that thing itself, the trunk. So when, the say, the, the dogmas of um, transubstantiation or the Immaculate Conception, things like that, that weren't present, say, a thousand years ago, those aren't proofs that the Catholic Church went bad. They're actually proofs of growth. Here, let me, let me give you the example on page 56. Does this mean that no progress in our perception of value can ever take place? We were bound down? No, he's saying no. That so long as the change is internal, it's good. And he, and he gives the example on 56 at the bottom. A theorist about language may approach his native tongue as it were from outside regarding its genius as a thing that has no claim on him, that he's not working from within, and advocating wholesale alterations of its idiom and spelling in the interests of commercial convenience or scientific accuracy. Think about the change that people want. Oh, God, oh, God. What was that change that took place? You know, they changed the definition of permissible or what? There have been lots of changes. You, no, okay, you guys remember when the, when the hearings, the Barrett hearings came up and somebody had made a statement and the, the Hawaiian senator was outraged and said, that's not the mean, what? Per what was that? And, and the dictionary, Oxford Dictionary, somebody the next day changed the definition <laughs> because it, it, it didn't square with the political politically correct reality about sexual relationships. I can't remember the change, but, but he's saying somebody can come in and change the language. That's one thing. A great poet who has loved and been well nurtured in his mother tongue may also make a great alteration in it, but his changes of the language are made in the spirit of the language itself. He works from within. The language was suffered has also inspired the changes. 
that is a different thing, as different as the works of Shakespeare are from basic English. It's the difference between alterations from within and alterations from without, between the organic and the surgical. So he gives the example in the middle of 57. There's a difference between a moral advance and a mere innovation. From the Confucian, do not do to others what you would not like them to do to you, to the Christian, do, do as you would be done by is a real advance. Can we take that just for a minute so we don't just take it for granted? Why is that an advance? Confucius said, do not do to others what you would not like them do to you. The Christian says, do as you would be done by is a real advance. Why is that so? Is that clear? Sorry, Doug. Say it. The Christian do unto others includes more. Can you explain it? What? Oh, Wait, can you, go, can you guys all hear Suzanne? Can you speak? So if you say, don't do to anybody what you don't want done to yourself, that's a limited, a much more limited class of action. If you say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, there's, it's a much broader, there's much more. Um, the other one requires limiting. I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, so I won't do this. Um, but if you do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's an open. Multiply that times the people would say that too, and the world of doing good would enlarge. Anybody else on that thought before we... Just take this one example. Can anybody, anybody? Well, you were talking about projecting before. Well, if you're doing to you want um, doing to others as you would have them do, you're not projecting. You're you're um, you know what you consider worthwhile, and you're starting from that point. But you're also ending up in something objective because it includes others. I mean, it's a rule for all of you. Right. Yeah. Debbie, you have a thought? Actually, I, I look at it as one is prohibitive. It's saying don't do certain things. And the other one is, is a positive action. It's saying, okay, you would like someone to be kind to you. You would like someone to assist you. You would like someone to help you um, and it's what what Christians are saying is that's what you need to be doing you need to actually be proactive rather than just not you know keeping yourself from doing evil to someone you need to proactively yeah. do something positive yep. for yep. them yep. Yep. actually what you're saying is you need to be doing the fruits of the spirit yeah which is a positive thing a right. very positive thing yeah Anybody else? St. Thomas, I can't, I don't have the lines, but St. Thomas makes the point that, um, and by the way, these are two of Milton's. If you remember from Paradise Lost, I think these were the, the two gifts that um, Adam and Eve came out of the garden with. Meekness and um, um, I think it was meekness and patience. I can't remember. And St. Thomas said those are good virtues, but they're um, inferior 
um, as um, virtues that are active because doing, avoid, it's Debbie's words, avoiding something, not doing something is a good thing, but actively doing something is a better good. Um, it asks more of us. It's, it brings something more positive to what we're doing. So there's a big difference between not doing something and being passive and being active, bringing something to what we do. So Lewis is, is saying that's an innovation, but it's from within the trunk. Because he's, remember, the, the, whole, the metaphor here is life itself, not stepping outside of it. What, what, have what has tradition taught us? Remember, the, the point he made in the first chapter was, innovators are, it's like they're, be, they're surgical, they're, um, what's the word, they're, he, he describes them in terms of conditioners. In the old world, people, teachers, passed on a tradition. In the new world, they're trying to create something wholly, entirely new. So it's propaganda, it's conditioning, it's, you can call it indoctrination, it's, it's a little bit of, I think, what Mark, Mark was talking about earlier when he was, I think if I'm reading between the lines right, that, you know, if, if you're, if you're, if you, if you enter a school system and you're, you're not receiving an inheritance, um, you're being passed on a new way of doing things and it doesn't relate to the past, it's a form of indoctrination, it's surgical, you're, you're cutting off branches from the tree instead of helping the tree to grow. And the interesting thing about the modern world is it despises the past. It's like it's not worth passing on. It's so full of sins and bad. Um, you know that that is not the way Socrates looked at the past or Boethius or Christ or... Um, <clears throat> Let me, let me, before we go on, I'm, I want to go back to Boethius for a minute here, um, but before we get there, let me, do any of you have any questions about these principles of self-evident truths? Do we have to start with things that are self-evident or we can't begin to even think at all, we can't even begin to act? So the whole point he's making is that all these, by the way, I, if, I don't know if you've all looked at the back, but if you go to the back, it's, it's pages and pages of um, moral axioms. Do this, do this. The, I'm just arbitrarily. Um, the law is good faith and a sacrifice is obliterated by a lie and the merit of alms by an act of fraud. That's Hindu. He, the next one is Babylonian. He is all over the world. What he's doing is taking um, practical moral principles that he he says are self-evidently good in themselves. If you look for a, a greater good, you won't find it. The, the, the basic premise of them all is um, do good, avoid evil. The basic self-evident principle in which we think is the rule of non-contradiction. We can't even begin to think or debate or discuss with each other if we don't accept that as self-evident. Any of you guys have any questions about that or I just want to get a clarification for, for me. I mean, doesn't this kind of come down to the whole question of the validity of moral judgment? And, and that some people believe that there is a fundamental or self-evident aspect and, and, and those that don't 
Because, I mean, isn't that, kind of, isn't that what's kind of leading into the abolition of man, is that you have to, you have to have a basic belief in those fundamental properties, if you will, because if you don't, then there's no grounding. So that, so that part of the problem is there are those that do and those that don't. don't Fred, just as a those that do believe and those that do not, is that the... Yes. Right. 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 Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He, so how do, how do those that do deal with those that don't? <laughs> it ultimately comes down to just power, doesn't it? Who has the power to invoke what they believe? Okay, here. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, why, why do I let myself in for this? Fred's question is, I mean, just it, it's his question. Oh, this is, I'm getting too old. I'm getting too old for this. You guys have to... Fred's question takes us back to the Republic. The opening question of the Republic, we've talked about this a good bit. We've not read it together. But the opening question of the Republic is justice, Thrasymachus takes the position, that all things come down to power. The justice is a matter of what those who are in power decide. The whole purpose of what Socrates did in answering the sophists, I mean, it goes right to your question, Fred, is there were people who took the position, that those are the sophists, comes down to power, this is what I want, I'll, I'll use reason to argue my case. Everything that Plato and Aristotle did was to show that reason itself was a good, and it had a basis. It could also destroy itself. So everything they did was to try to lay the rational foundations of what you're calling a belief on one side. But to try to answer your question, you know, what do you do when you, so two people come together and one believes and one doesn't. One accepts that, say, reason or self-evident things are self-evidently true and the other one doesn't. It, I, my, the only answer that I can give you, because you're, you're going right to the knot of things here, is that all of these men would claim that reason itself is sufficient to answer them if you go back to first principles. And to do that, you've got to be clear on what those first principles are, so that when you're dealing with some guy, say, um, let's say, I mean, because what Lewis has got specifically on his mind in the chapter that we're reading, he uses the word, hold on if I can get it. I, I want to be so grounded here for you guys. Give me, please, give me a second. He says, on those pages that I was just looking at, page... 55, he says, um, having answered all these problems, and he's trying to be very honest in dealing with the, it, it's doing, I mean, he's really picking up your question, Fred, that he's trying to use reason to answer people who are going to use reason, these are the ways, and show what's wrong with him. He says, since I can see no answer to these questions, I draw the following conclusions. This thing which I have called for convenience the Tao, that is the trunk, and which others may call natural law, traditional morality, first principles of practice, that is, all those things that are self-evident that we have to accept as true or we can't go on. It's the sole source of all value judgments. If it's rejected, all values rejected. It's going to your point. If any value is retained, it's retained. The effort to refute it and raise a new system of value in its place is self-contradictory. Now, Fred, just to hold on, because he will leave us hanging at the end of this chapter saying, this is another story. I'm going to have to pick this up in the 
third chapter. So the third chapter, in a sense, is going to take more directly your question. But what I want to get to here is this. The effort to refute and raise a new system of value in its place is self-contradictory. Why, he will make clear, next chapter, there has never been, never will be, a radically new judgment of value in the history of the world. What purports to be new systems, or as they are now called, ideologies, all consist of fragments from the Tao itself, arbitrarily wrenched from their context, the whole, and then swollen to madness in their isolation, yet still owing to the Tao. Here's my response, a quick response. What he's saying is, and it's amazing, and remember, he's a theist, he's a Christian. He's, he's doing nothing explicitly with Christianity. What he's trying to do is make a defense of reason itself. And what he's saying is, and this goes to your question, any the, the, what today we call ideologues, Marxists, feminists, Freudians, these new systems of thought, if you look at what they're doing, none of them can take the position that they do without going to some aspect, because otherwise they destroy themselves. They're going to some part of reason and taking a part and trying to make it a whole, bigger than it is. So to answer your question directly, what you've got to do with somebody when you're in, you know, in the way you present it, two people, one who believes and one who doesn't, is you've got to be able to go to first principle to see what it is that, that the person's drawing on and use reason to go back to make a discussion, a debate possible. The, the beauty of what he's doing, if you look at like Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and so many moderns who are looking at a Christian world that's passing, because the rationalists are taking it over, every one of those men is doing an extraordinary thing with reason. And what Lewis is doing right now is going right to the heart of it with these arguments. So, every because if you think about it, Fred, just or any of you, either you're an anarchist and there's nothing, in which case there's no way to talk to that person, or anybody who's making an argument for a system of values has got to be taking something already there Lewis would say he's chopping at the trunk, chopping off branch. You know, he's he's surgical. He's instead of helping it grow, he want he so he doesn't want to follow along. Um, he wants to create something new because he believes all these old things are bad or sinful or corrupted or you know whatever you want to say. He's saying that nobody can produce a new system who doesn't borrow from that Tao. The trouble is they will take it in this part and try to make it into something that's not. So the man who's going to discuss anything with him has got to be able to go back to first principles and argue those out, which is what he's been doing in the book. And I guess, Bob, that's that that really gets to my question, because going back to Boethius and the Constellation of Philosophy, <laughs> and lady, lady Philosophy was using reason yep. To, yep. to bring Boethius around, and... If you go back to the arguments that she made, Boethius fairly quickly accepted or adopted what she was saying because I think he was basically founded in first principles. I would argue that today we're dealing with people who aren't necessarily founded in first principles. And so the question is, what do you do? This, I mean, wonderful. If you don't have power, what do you do? Because in those cases, when you try reason, 
you're reasoning with somebody who doesn't have the fundamental first principle base to to work from. Right. Could could not agree more. I'm not. I mean, couldn't. Go, I think. I mean, my response is, I I want to go to the book again for Louis. It's really interesting because what I was going to do next. It, this is so funny. I'm going to Boethius. <laughs> I'm not I'm not kidding, but. My, the, the, the most direct answer, Fred, because you're, you know, you're going to a root problem is this is the reason he's writing the book. You know, that, you know Boethius, I think, well enough now to know that Lady Philosophy um, dismissed that notion of power. The answer is not power. That's, that's an illusion. And she gave the reasons for that. Um, it's, not, it's not power. You do, um, it, I mean, to, to, to put it the way you did, as if... You know, you could bring Christ to the world and everybody would magically believe it and we've changed. And we all know that's not going to happen. But what you do do on a scale of according to your own abilities or talents is do what C.S. Lewis is doing. Each one of us in our own abilities, whatever our own gifts, um, we, write, we write abolition of man. You, that's why I went to that passage. He's saying pretty strongly the people who who you know, profess this, put this viewpoint, are leading to the destruction of the world. So Lewis is not sitting out with any great ambitions or expectations that he can cure the world, or, but what he is doing is doing what he can, according to his gifts, to show that there's something in reason itself that's worth fighting for. And in, in the way that he's done it, he's trying, in his sort of modest way, to answer all those teachers who are presenting another worldview. Um, I, I don't want to go to the election. I don't want to go to the election because it's, it's just troubling to go there. But I, it seems to me, and I, don't, I really don't want to get into a political you know, concern here, but it seems to me one of the things that we've been witnessing in the last, say, 25, 30 years is what, what I would call the rise of the conservative movement. You know, if you go back to its roots 30 years ago, and and with all the faults, I, I don't want to get into. If you, I, I despair. I mean, I, there are times when the darkness of the. I I, I watch Tolkien because I, I'm glad to see all that evil overcome. Um, when I one, Suzanne hears me going on about. I'm not even going to use my swear words online. I don't want this. I don't want this going out on tape. Um, but I have not kind things to say about lots that's going on in the world. And then suddenly, a, um, a black American will get up and argue against a black American, or Obama. Or a woman will get up and argue against a woman on abortion. Forty years ago, that wouldn't have happened. That would not have happened. If anybody had opposed a black because he was black, he would have been immediately called bigoted and racist. That's taken away. If anybody had opposed a woman 30 years ago, um, he or she would have been called bigoted, backward, you know, all those things. I mean, it's going to your question, but e even if it's on a small scale, you're watching blacks take on blacks, women take on women, that, that conservative, that the trunk that I'm going to call against ideologies, that more and more people are becoming articulate and more and more people are, are becoming articulate enough to answer the people who have been in the university for the last 30 years teaching a different way of thinking. The people who are coming up now are, are capable of answering them. 
They're not just blindly accepting you. A real, a real engagement, a debate is taking place in America. Um, I, I, I don't want to go there, but I just it. There are things that will crush it. You know, it'll. My belief is it will come back. But when I see people stepping forward and taking on the doctrinaire ideologues that this is the way it is, this is the way it is, this is the way it is, and they're beginning to argue to show that that's not the way it is, that's a sign of health in our country. That's an old way of life that was buried and quiet and passive. It's becoming more, it's not hostile and violent, but it is patient, it's, you know, it's articulate, it's intelligent. So um, all the, I'm going to say all the abuses of power are being answered because power by itself is never sufficient. We know that from Plato, we know it from Boethius. So that's the, I mean, that's the short answer, Fred. It's, at least it's a hopeful one. It's my belief at, you know, at this point. Bob? Yeah, you. Where is that coming from? Where is what coming from, Kathy? Uh, people that are standing up and speaking out. That is such and a education where is it coming from my my I, god this is sort of an amazing discussion i, I don't I, we're getting away from the text and i'm nervous about doing that but my own response to that my personal response is <laughs> we're talking in terms of such generalities right now okay but that's i can't I, i'm at a loss to do anything else my own answer to that is um this is another piece of evidence in favor of what lewis is doing in answer to you fred that, and Plato was taking the same, doing the same thing when he's taking on the sophist. When a, when a political system is created that's at variance with the real nature of the soul, that was Plato's concern in the Republic. When in Russia, America, you know, wherever, when a political system um, is created that's at variance with the soul, that people will rise up because there's something in man's nature that longs for reason, faith, God. Those are inherent in the soul. And when political systems are created that um, deny those or don't properly um, nurture them, that there's this impulse to answer. And in America, the answer to that has become more and more intellectual because the source of the wrongs, I believe, had been in education. It started at the universities and higher education and then filtered down. So the, the, the ideologues who were, took over the university for the last 40 years and who produced teachers that went into the grade schools, you know, that more and more, that's, it, I mean, I, the, for me, that I, I, I am so in, in tune with Lewis when he says, sent the word in to kill the children, you know, that's what's happened. I, the damage it's done to me is, I think it's one of the reasons I do this class, because I love what we're doing. But I just think that, that there, there's something in our nature, and there will be um, losses, lives will be taken, there will be costs, that people will die, uh, people will believe certain things that will harm their families, they will grow up teaching those things. That's the fruit of education. It goes back to this word and what you know what's being taught. But there is something inherently good. This goes back to Boethius. This goes back to our faith. There's something inherently good, and where those conditions exist, human beings are going to rise up. 
if the if the problems are in education as they are in America and the West, that all these educational theories have been promulgated for decades, that people are going to become more articulate in answering them. And I think that's that's what's happening on a I wish it were happening on a larger scale right now, but I think it's happening. Can we get to Boethius? I'm gonna. I wanted to. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna have. We're gonna have to extend this time. I want to just ask two questions here as a as a as a, um, a a stage in our thinking here. I wanted to get back to Lewis, but I wanted to get back to him by way of Boethius. So it's interesting, Fred, what you did because that's exactly where my mind was going. Unless you guys got it off of the notes, but he, I want. I want to just ask a couple of questions. You know that after Boethius in Book Three takes up all of the false sources of happiness. You remember what... Um, like, um, power, wealth. Power, wealth. Power was one of them. Popular acclaim, fame, bodily pleasure, nobility, all of the things. You remember that he took all of them up. The, there are four major ones. Pleasure, fame, wealth. Power. Power, I think. He... Lady Flossy pretty adequately answers, shows how none of those can last and, and finally shows that in order for man to be happy, for him to know real felicity, a joy, the delight that, his, that he's arguing is the natural end of man, um, he can only find fulfillment of, for that in God because all those other things are vulnerable and inherently... Um, not self-sufficient. They're, they're passing. They all exist in God in some preeminent way, but as a whole. So Lady Flossie goes on to make the argument that the ultimate, the ultimate answer to man's longing for happiness, remember the story begins because he's miserable. He feels he's been unjustly treated. He wants to be happy. He wants to be glad. And, and Flossie says, you've lost your way and we've got to help you recover it. So she goes through this, these arguments. She takes up each of the false sources of happiness, and there's only God, and then she takes on um, a couple of his qualities, unity and goodness, and makes the argument that God is complete goodness. And it's only by moving towards that goodness and participating in it that man himself can become good and strengthen his good. And she makes the argument that evil is a turning away from that. As a matter of fact, even if people look at evil admiringly, um, she makes the argument that they're misseeing things, that people who are evil are actually miserable and actually weaker than the good because the evil people can't do what they want according to their nature. They can't do good things. So they actually live in misery. Now I don't want to, it's getting late, so I want to just start with one, and when we pick up on next week, I want to go back to Boethius and we'll finish chapter two, and if we have time, we'll start, start chapter three. But, but I want to go back to Boethius, um, because you know that the central question of Boethius is um, justice and goodness, and it's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Justice and mercy versus cure and therapy, and God's justice in the place of punishments. Boethius will go on to make the argument that, that evil will be punished, and good will be rewarded, that God allows the two of them because it gives him a way to help me evil, 
people become good. I don't want to go through that argument. We'll look at it next week. And it helps um, good people to be tested. That all people um, um, learn about themselves through hardship. The good do, the evil do. Okay. But I want to go back to, um, it's a statement that she makes on page 81 that God can do no evil. And then you remember later, it's on page 108 and page 111, she finally comes to a point where she says there is no bad fortune. I don't want to go through the argument right now. I want to go back to the, that basic principle before we go any farther because it goes to the crux of what we're talking about. She makes the claim that the only thing that can answer man's longing for happiness is goodness. A goodness that is self-sufficient and complete in itself. And we call that God. And it's as we move to him, participate in his life, that we actually take on something of divinity, even if we're human. We'll change our nature, we're humans. But something divine enters into us. Turning away from us will actually cripple us. Okay? I don't want to go there. I want to go to the starting point. She says that um, God is all goodness, and God can do no evil, that evil is nothing. I just want to go back to that principle tonight, because we've only got a few minutes left, because it's fundamental to everything that Boethius goes on to do. We'll pick that up next week. But I want to ask you all if that's self-evident to everybody. I, I want to be very clear on that before we go any farther. She says that God is complete goodness, and evil is nothingness. Is that clear? No. Who said that? Kathy. Kathy. Yeah, good for you. Bless your soul. I, I've heard that, I've read that, and I have never understood Okay, it. why is it true? It has to be true. Why? Let's get the argument. Wait, here it is. Let's get the argument out. What does reason have to offer us here? Let me put it this... Go ahead, Mark. Did you have something? Were you going to... Mark. Okay, I think I may. Um, I may be going the wrong direction, but it's like hell, you know, hell is the absence of God for eternity. Therefore, you know, hell evil... Coincidental, so that there is an absence of God, and if God is goodness, then there's just nothing left. That's about yeah. as good as I got. Anybody else, Fred? Do you did you have your hand? I don't. There, your hand is up, but you're, can you take your hand? It's just anybody else. Let me see if I can go through this. This is. This, and it, you know the question that I'm going to end with tonight is what can philosophy give us that science can't? Because Boethius is going to make claims. He's going to go to values of judgment. Finally, I mean it's what you know what Lewis's whole argument is concerned with. But um, does everybody agree that if there is a God, he has to be complete goodness? Yes. Okay. Is um, did anybody create God? No. Hold on. Hold on. Let's okay. back up. Okay. We believe God has created great goodness, but that doesn't mean he is or he isn't. We simply don't know, and we choose to believe that he is. 
Okay, so it may or may not be. We don't know. Let's just stay in a world of thought for a second. If if we love good things, and we allow that there's a gradation to things, we know that there's something better than other that that this longing for hap happiness. Let's just say for a moment, Mark, if we can, to posit a God. Okay. What we mean by God, if we have, if we give him any meaning, is if there is a God, he's got to be complete goodness in itself, because otherwise we can't. So first mover, that's Aristotle, Plato, they're, you know, contingent things. Um, we either have to go to something that's self-evidently in itself, or we can't reason, because it'll just reason will go on forever. There'll never be an answer. So all of them understood that first mover, that uncontingent, nothing contingent, was God. He is complete goodness in itself. Um, so philosophically, stay away from Christianity for a minute. Philosophically, if God is anything, he's complete goodness. He's uncreated, because if he were, it would mean somebody else created him. For that to be, that had to be somebody greater in goodness than he was. Yeah? Kathy, that's self-evident. Yes. Good. Because, because just so you know, just so you know, you're dealing I with... I good. Because because I look at these things and I think you know I, I I was reading the second chapter today and and realizing this was such a work logically to hold on to this stuff in my head, so um, so God is complete goodness okay. I, I, I still got a problem with that. Well, hold on to your problem and just if you can't suffer for a minute, Kathy, you don't have a problem with it, yes? No problem. Okay, suffering. good. God is complete goodness. He has to be. If God, if the meaning means anything, complete goodness, it has to be. Because otherwise it means something had, he had to be created. And if that's true, so there's something greater than he is. Just Mark, just wait, let me, please, let me have a minute. Because we're almost out of time. So, if there's a God and he's complete goodness, it means he has all these things in him that, all, that humans long for. The point that I want to get to right now is that that it, everybody be clear, even if you've got a question, at least for a moment, that if he's complete goodness, it means he was uncreated, because if he weren't and somebody created him, there had to be something greater than he is, a goodness greater than his own. Now that's axiomatic, that's logical. If you're thinking at all, there's no other conclusion to come to. Here's my question. Boethius says if Good. If God is good, then evil is the opposite of that. It's nothing. And she'll go on, you know, with her arguments. But I want to go on. I'm, I just want to take a minute with that because I think that's a, a place where people trip. Um, what she's saying is that evil is an absence, a nothing. That's the that's the belief of the church until the Reformation. Um where evil becomes something other because you know that Calvin says God can create evil beings. I mean, we don't, we don't believe that. To me, that's incoherent. But What is evil? Can evil exist outside of God? Just logically. Doesn't, he have, doesn't evil have to exist outside of God? It can't exist no. in him. Right. Okay, good. So Suzanne said... So you want to go there, Don? So God can't have any evil in him. Right. And if he is complete, if he is being itself. Right, being itself. Um, so everything that is comes from him. 
and he's complete being, and he can't have any evil, then oh. evil can't exist because it can't exist in him, and there's nothing outside of him. Okay, if, if we can just hold, hold on to that, please. If we can just, everybody be patient. Why cannot evil exist outside of God as a thing in itself? Genie, you're good. Well, you just said it wasn't created by God, but God created everything. So that in itself, we got an issue here. I know. Yeah. Jeannie, go ahead. If, if evil exists outside of God, then good there is you. something that is good for you. more powerful than God. Or other than God. Other than God. And if God created everything, then and he would not create evil, then evil is nothing. It, it is the absence. I think I agree with Mark. It's like the absence of God. Like we think of hell as being the absence right. of God. Wait, by the way, that, so I mean, logically, if everybody's following, your logic was impeccable. Everybody, okay? And, and I hold on, just I'm, I'm going to jump. I want to jump for a minute. Remember in Dante, in the middle of the Purgatorio, Dante's discourse on evil was what was the source? That I think I, my, my assumption was it blew you all away. I mean, some of you seem to be forgetting that. I, that to me is so stamped on my head. What was Dante's discourse on good and evil? Where did evil come from? Wait, take genies. Is it really clear? Evil cannot exist outside of God. Because then you have to ask, where did it come from? Somebody I mean, take Suzanne's thinking a minute ago, add to it this, where did evil come from? By the way, Zoroastrians believe that good and evil are co-eternal. If you believe that, it's a truncated philosophy because it doesn't explain anything. If that's the reason, there's no reason not to be evil. <laughs> the, only, the only sensible understanding is God is being itself. He's complete goodness. If something exists outside of them, it means he's not complete. Evil can't exist outside of him. It can't exist in. What's Dante, Aristotle, St. Thomas's? This is the center of our church, for goodness sake. Where did evil come from? He's not evil. all goodness. He is all goodness. That's different to me than complete goodness. But he's, he is also a complete being. <laughs> Jeannie, and, Jeannie and Carl, can you mute yourselves? <laughs> so aren't you basically, basically saying then that there is no Satan? No. No. Satan was created. Because if nothing can, Satan can't, can't, can certainly not exist within God. Satan was created. Nothing can exist outside of God. Wait, listen. Where does Satan exist? Doc, Sam, here, can you hear her? So Satan was created good. Good. Yeah. And he was but he's created not now. But and he was created with free will. Will. So where does he reside? Wait, can we hold off on that question for just, just so we can get past this basic question of good and evil? Boethius' position, Boethius' position is God is complete goodness. He's complete being. Evil has to be a nothingness. The church's teaching from Plato is that evil is a privation. It's a turning away from God. If you put evil outside of you, you have to ask, where did evil come from? Here's Dante's answer, and, and, and it goes to Fred's question. God made nothing bad. The Calvinists changed that dramatically. And I think Luther did in a fundamental way, but let me wait on that. 
Um, Dante's answer in the middle of the Purgatorio was, the source of evil is love. I remember presenting that to you and thinking it would shock you. And, uh, because you remember his understanding, and this is fundamental to the teaching of the church, because of its, because of its rational basis. Um, the source of evil is um, love. When man takes the love that God put in him and, remember, directs it towards his pride, or remember the levels of purgatory? Pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust. When man takes his loves and, and turns them towards evil because he chooses to make something bad, he, he puts something in the place of God, what happens to him? It's He starts to lose his goodness. It's a privation. It's a, we're going to get to Boethius next week. He can do that by turning his, in his pride, by making himself or other things greater. He can do it in envy, by wishing harm on people because he doesn't have what they want, so he'll work harm. Wrath, when he wants to see other people suffer for the suffering he's done. You know, we can go through the whole thing again. We've been there. Sloth. Where the remember lower lower purgatory and upper purgatory was loving evil, the evil, and loving good in the wrong way. Sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust, making good things bad, not because they're inherently bad, but because of disordered loves. So the whole struggle of returning to God was exactly Lewis's argument. We have to learn to order our loves. So the argument here at this point, it's just crucial to get clear on it, is God is complete goodness. There is no evil, can't exist outside of him. Evil is an absence, it's a privation. Now I know that that, I mean, Mark's and Jeannie's question is, you know, what then? Right now I'd, not, I'd like to not take it up. I'd like to take it up next week. Next week when we start, we're going to pick up right here with Boethius, just a quick review, get back to Lewis's essay. But at this point, I just want everybody to be clear. Um, according to Boethius, there is this objective good in itself. That's God. All people, all humans long for happiness. The ultimate answer to that happiness is this complete goodness. The opposite of that is evil, nothing. So his argument is that when man starts doing evil, and this is, this is behind every great story we've ever read, once a man commits himself to evil, even if he thinks he's powerful, that evil will destroy him. Evil will destroy itself. In fact, let me put this as boldly as I can. No matter how bad things get in the world, no matter, no matter how much evil in the world is, can God ever be defeated? No. No. No matter what evil does, it, there's no way it can defeat God. The very nature of evil will destroy itself. Does that mean there's not a battle going on? No, because we know our, our understanding. We are all involved in the church militant. There's a grave battle going on between good and evil in our world. All of us are involved in it. I just want to get clear on first principles. God is complete goodness. He's completed himself. Evil does not exist in him or outside of him. Evil is something that's brought into the world by good things that God has created because they have choice and chose to turn away from him. 
That was Satan's instantaneous choice. Let me stop. Um, wait, wait, wait. Oh, sorry. Fred, your question about where does the sa where does Satan reside, isn't that sort of akin to how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I mean, Satan's not a physical creature. Although he has a being. He does have a being, but he doesn't have a house. I know, but we, I mean, we, we understand him be at the center <laughs> of hell. Let's stop here, because th this, this could take much longer. We're, I, I'm trying to hold to time, because um, can all of you make a point of uh, um, hooking up early? I'm going to get a hold of Mike to try to get, I don't know what happened tonight, I'm really sorry for the lateness, but um, if you could all try to get on earlier, I, I tried to get on at 6.15 tonight or, and couldn't get on. Bob? Yeah. Hey, the whole world uses Zoom. If you ever, Zoom is super easy. You might change from going from Teams to Zoom. Everything works the same. You send out a link, people click in, have a nice day. But it doesn't slow down your computer as much. Sometimes video and Teams in general takes up a lot of processor power, so everything lags, including video and audio. So it might be something to try. Okay. I do Zoom five, six times a day at work. I'm sure everybody else who's been working from home does too. Well, yeah. I really don't want it, but so it's an idea. No, no, I'm glad, Mark. I'm really glad. I when I, I'll talk with Mike. Yeah. Um, and see. I asked. Sorry? And Mike said, I asked Mike about that when we got started, and we have a time limitation on Zoom before we have to pay for it and schedule it. And it, I think that was one of the issues that... It was. It was. Constrained. It was. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, I'll, but I'll go back to it with Mike again and see what he says. Anyway, um, listen, we've, this is heavy stuff. It's going to basic things. I'm glad we're doing it. These are the things that so many people take for granted. You just can't take them for granted. I mean, th these these are the things we stand on, and we you know we don't even know the ground we stand on. So, I'm really glad we're taking these things up. Um, um, we will do. We'll go back to Boethius. To I just want to quickly cover basics of his argument, and then pick up the second chapter again in Lewis. And if we have time, we'll we'll do the third. All of you guys um, get Aeschylus, because we'll pick him up. And just know, um, I want to do Aeschylus, and then I want to do Shakespeare. I want to get back and do King Lear and Pericles, which I've been wanting to do for a year. So we've got those of you who still have powers of endurance. We've still got some work. Just so you know. Um, yeah. Sorry. In As far as Aeschylus, which... I have a, a book that has five or six different things that are all by Aeschylus. Are we reading all of them? No, are we no. reading just the libation bearers? Or? It, yeah, it's a trilogy. It's the Agamemnon, the libation bearers, and the Eumenides. It's, it's just okay. the, the, that trilogy. That's all. Okay. Thank you. That's really about the founding of Athens. And interesting, it's about the founding of reason. <clears throat> it's, it's something happens with Athens and... This whole principle of self-rule, of self-governance. Libation bears and It's very much it's very much a, the issue of what's going on politically in our country, whether we're going to be ruled by, you know, a government or self-rule and 
those struggles. So these things go very much to our lives. So anyway, if you all could keep each other, if we could all keep each other in our prayers, um, pray for our son Jonathan, pray for our son Christopher. Um, next week um, we'll pick up here. So you guys have a good week, okay, all of you. Stay well, okay. Thanks, you too. I'm gonna leave. What do I do? Mm -hmm.